unification of Germany in the 19th century is one of the standout moments in contemporary European history. In its shadow, Europe sees the emergence of a new great military power, as well as an economic dynamo which could rival the likes of the United States and the British Empire. And yet, less than a century later, in 1949, the country was once more torn asunder into two parts. After defeat in two world wars and economic collapse, there was now a West Germany and East Germany. East Germany was a historic experiment. It was a communist state on German soil. Yet, despite that, its history has been somewhat neglected. We don't really talk about it very much, principally because it disappeared from maps after 1990. But that's a shame, because the communist DDR, for a time at least, was able to provide rising living standards and in certain aspects be a world leader on things like women's rights. Which is why today's guest is Katja Hoyer. She's a historian and the author of a new book, Beyond the Wall, a history of East Germany. Katja, welcome to Downstream. How are you? Good, thank you. You've written this new book about uh, East Germany, its history. What moved you to write a book about a country which hasn't existed for over 30 years? Well, it was partially a personal decision because I was born in that country, which doesn't exist anymore. And there's a sense that whilst you know I was very young when the wall came down, I was only four years old, it's still a country that you know, you were born in the city that I was born in, Wilhelm Piekstadtguben was called after the first president of the GDR. So you will neither find the country nor the city that I was born in on the map today. And that leaves you with the sense of, you know, wanting to almost go back and explore where you came from, maybe where you would have come from had you been born 10, 15, 20 years earlier. Um, and secondly, f from a historian's point of view, um, I feel that the history of this country, of the German Democratic Republic, as it was called, is somewhat written out of the narrative in in Germany. Um, and so the other thing I wanted to do from, from that angle is to put it back as a chapter of German history and give it the place that I think it deserves. Do you have a sense of loss about that? I mean, it is pretty incredible. It's something that I think most Brits wouldn't really even be familiar with, this idea that millions of Germans come from a country which no longer exists. There was this alternative culture, a way of doing things, political and economic system, which just evaporated. Is there a sort of sense of, yeah, sort of, a personal identity that you 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 feel you might have lost. You know, there was a different Katja Hoyer had she, <laughs> you know, had she, like you say, been born a few decades earlier. I wouldn't say it's a sense of loss, more a sense of being intrigued about that, more a sense of you know wondering, pondering what what could have been, what would have been. Um, but I think I was too young to have a genuine sense of loss about it because that seems to apply, I think, to generations who are a few years older than me, where the state and the system and this this way of doing things had already had a, a kind of more of a socializing impact, I suppose, on on people. Whilst for me, you know, it's there, I have vague childhood memories about it, but it isn't a personal um thing in my life. It wasn't wasn't, you know, that big a factor basically in my youth. Yeah, so this this book is an extraordinary book, by the way. It's very good. It's a bestseller already, so congratulations <laughs> on that. Thank you. And I, I, that there are lots of bestsellers which aren't very good books. This is a really, really outstanding book. And obviously people that tend to watch and listen to Navarro Media, they tend to be on the left. You might know this. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think particularly for those on the left, it has real, real value. And the drama into which this country em emerges, you know, the crucible of the 20th century and its history and the historic forces, you have Stalin, you have Hitler. Let's start right at the top. What was life like for German communists uh, under 
Adolf Hitler with the emergence of the Third Reich after the early 1930s? Well, I think people forget sometimes, you know, what their situation was like because we focus a lot on, um, you know, the Second World War and the military side, basically, of of fascism, of, of national socialism, whilst people forget that at home within Germany, there had been a really strong both social democratic and socialist and communist movement, which now that, uh, you know, Hitler came into power in 1933, became basically a, a deadly ideology um, and one that could not only get you into a, a prison or a concentration camp, but actually killed, murdered. So once Hitler came into power, a few people decided to stay in Germany and, and sort of fight underground. But the vast majority of German communists decided that if it was worth clinging on to the ideology, it would be safer to do so outside of Germany. And so many of them actually fled to Soviet Russia um, or the, the Soviet Union as a way of, of escaping Nazism, of a way of escaping Hitler, but also as a way of fighting and co continuing the fight basically from, from outside within a regime that they'd seen as the only realization of, of sort of this ideology that they'd been dreaming about for such a long time. So this is social democrats, communists. Was it... Was it the majority of them went to the Soviet Union? Were there other countries or was that generally where they went? There were other countries too. So there was, for instance, a, a sale set up in, in Paris. Um, some also went to Czechoslovakia to start with, um, particularly to Prague. Uh, there was a, the, a social democratic sort of resistance sale built up there. The problem was, of course, that once um, you know the influence of Nazism spread through conquest, those didn't stay safe places, basically, for them to be. Not that the Soviet Union was a safe place either, but because that wasn't conquered, basically, many people also, even in those Western enclaves, eventually ended up in the Soviet Union. And many, many of them also decided to uh, basically just keep their heads down. So they stayed in Germany and, and didn't um, kind of continue with their political activities and and just sort of try to, you know, seep into the system and, and remain unknown until until the system was defeated. You have this extraordinary quote really early on in the book. More members of the KPD, which is the German Communist Party, KPD's executive committee died at Stalin's hands than Hitler's. So what kind of numbers are we looking at? Um, so if you're just looking at the leadership, the, the sort of Politburo of the Communist Party, there were nine people that went to the Soviet Union. And at the end of the war, two of them were still alive. And that's, you know, that's quite remarkable, really. And those two were Walter Ulbricht and Wilhelm Pieck, uh, the two um, sort of German communists who get sent back after the war to set up uh, the Soviet Union. But you're also talking uh, tens of thousands of kind of ordinary Germans, some of them political, some of them not, um, who uh, died at Stalin's hands simply because of the idea that they're German, not necessarily because they're communists. So in Stalin's logic, um, there was the sense that, you know, there's a fifth column that's working on Hitler's behalf. There was a suspicion that if you were communist and you'd previously been in a Nazi concentration camp, that you must have somehow got out of that. Why aren't you dead? Basically was mm. what was going on in his mind. Um, and then this idea that because you're still alive, you must have made some sort of deal, some sort of pact with the Nazis about becoming a spy or working on their behalf, being sent into the Soviet Union, you know, into the factories, um, into workplaces and so on and so forth to try and undermine the Soviet system. And that suspicion escalated in the time of the Great Purges where German communists were targeted as Germans um, because of that, that suspicion. And many of them ended up in the, in the Gulag system. So there's, there's nine of them. Two of them go back. What happens to the other seven? 
Well, one of them dies of natural causes. Um, he was also supposed to go with them, so he, he's right. kind of just ill. Um, the others get killed, um, basically, quite often accused of, of sabotage, of, of wrongdoing, um, and either uh, convicted outright um, and shot, or, as I say, sort of vanished into the gulag system, um, many of them as well. You've got here another quote. Stalin's purges were so extensive that only one quarter of German emigres in the USSR survived them. That is absolutely extraordinary. So how many numbers are we talking about? Stalin killed basically tens of thousands yeah, of Germans he who, did, were, who he would have been on the political left. Not Social all Social Democrats, communists, trade unionists. Yeah, not all of them. I mean, there were a lot of people who uh, fled basically because, you know, other reasons they might have been opposed to Hitler for, for personal reasons, whatever. But that's the whole point. It didn't really matter whether you were political or not. Once you were German and you were in Soviet Russia it was very, very hard to convince the authorities that you were not a threat. I mean, people also forget that there were loads of um, sort of what you call ethnic Germans, Volksdeutsche in Russia already. They'd been there sort of since the settlement programs of, of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, who'd brought them in to set up infrastructure, culture, and so on. So these were people who had lived there virtually, you know, for centuries in some cases. And they were still considered German, they were still considered potential spies, and they were also targeted. So, you know, this German order, and I quote that in the book as well, that was given out, was deliberately targeted at anybody with German citizenship, German origins, or any kind of connection to Germany. Is this taught in Germany today? Because speaking from a sort of a UK context or a British context, Anglophone context, you have, and this is very controversial, I'm not going to say that you have these views or anything like that, but you have this default where people say they were both as bad as each other, socialists and fascists. They were both as bad as each other. Stalin and Hitler, it's all very simple, black and white. But clearly you have very large numbers of people on the left in Germany being persecuted by two different um, dictators with you know, very different politics, and they're being squeezed in the middle. And, and one of the points that you really convey well in the book is the, the tragedy of that, the tragedy of German socialism, really from the mid-1930s, early 1930s, all the way through to the end of the Second World War. Is that a part of the historical memory of Germany, or is it sort of just, just passed by? Well, it depends a bit who you ask. I mean, in, in East Germany later on, that was the main narrative. You know, people looked at kind of victims of Nazism through the lens of political victims. And when you go to concentration camps and museums today, um, which are in the East, so like Sachsenhausen, for instance, just outside of Berlin, or Buchenwald, just outside of Weimar, you will find that they're almost like shrines to German socialists who were um, captured there and who were who were either died there or basically stayed there during the war. Um, and East Germany had a tendency thereby to perhaps downplay, not just perhaps downplay other victims, particularly Jews, as, as kind of like a side narrative. Um, and in the West, it was kind of the complete opposite. People focused, once they started talking about this, that is, so in the West, early on, there was this kind of blanket of silence thrown over the whole thing in the 50s and in the early 60s. And this once, is the, the Holocaust you're referring to? Yeah, gen generally kind of Nazism, camps. concentration right. camps, the crimes that were committed, the Holocaust in particular. Um, in the 50s and 60s, people just didn't want to talk about it. There was kind of the sense that, you know, that's done now. We had the Nuremberg trials. Let's get on with, with things. Uh, former Nazis were reintegrated into the system under Konrad Adenauer, the first West German chancellor. And then once people started talking about it in the 60s, late 60s onwards, um, the focus was very much on the Holocaust. Um, and the, as you say, there was almost a sense of, you know, we can see now under Stalin and, and you know, in the GDR, how, ba how bad the socialists would have done mm. things in any case. And so 
their story was sort of sidelined um, under under that system. So today in Germany, it depends how old people are and where they lived, whether they will remember that or not. Because if you ask older East Germans, they will know specific figures, specific people. Um, they will know the whole story. <clears throat> if you ask younger people or people who grew up in the West, know so much. Younger people know. Um, I mean, it just so is, isn't... Is it, is it part of sort of German... When they teach contemporary German history, is that a part of something that young people are sort of lear learning? Or? Uh, I mean, yes, they do to some extent, but it's very tricky when you get people like, um, you know, kind of early socialist leaders, basically, who uh, kind of died in concentration camps. That's always seen as a... Yes, they were kind of resistance leaders, but at the same time, because you also teach East Germany as a dictatorship, mm. you know, there's this almost a sense of if they survived, they would have become part of that system. So there's maybe perhaps a reluctance to um, uphold these people as, as sort of heroes or resistance martyrs. fighters, martyrs, to, to, the, in, to the extent that the GDR would have done it. So do you think there's, a, that, do you think there's an inaccuracy there in terms of how the, the, the Federal German Republic today memorializes those people? Because clearly there's a, there's a great historical crime happening to a group of people. Um, do, do, you, do you think there's an inaccuracy at the heart of that, or it's very hard because you've got these competing, you know, sort of narratives, and when Germany still hasn't entirely come to terms with lots of the other victim groups as well. Of course, um, I mean, a lot of money and, and effort has been spent on on the surface level, for instance, to deal with the Holocaust, with the murder of Jews. But at the same time, not so much evidence or kind of uh, part of the narrative has been targeted at, say, disabled people, for instance, and the and the murder of of those in their tens of thousands, also as a precursor to the Holocaust. Um, so I think there's still a, a way or discussion to be had around, you know, where do other victim groups stand? Not least because the numbers are so much smaller as well. I think it's not just a political thing. Um, and also because, you know, the, the way that you could kind of choose as many people did not to be a socialist anymore, if you sort of said at some point, I'm just going to give up on my politics and go home and keep my head down, that saved your life. You couldn't do that if you were Jewish. So, you know, there's also mm. that complication there in terms of who was targeted for what reason and in what severity as well. So it's, it's a really complicated thing in German national kind of memory to try and, and find a way of, of getting these sort of German socialists into the into the story. There's another quote here. With 70% of the KPD membership eradicated, so that's the German Communist Party, that, that presumably is the pre-Third Reich membership was has been eliminated by 1945. What remained was a group of Sovietized ideologues who sought to create a replica of what they had found in Russia. So... Obviously, most of the Politburo has been uh, murdered. Many of the emigres who go to Russia have been murdered. Was it therefore inevitable that East Germany would have many of the sort of undemocratic features it would subsequently exhibit because of these people being in Russia? Was that just, there was never really an alternative DDR given it was being led by some of the people we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, I mean, you end up in, a, in an absurd situation where the people who do get sent back are the people who are left over. And they, had, they were left over for a reason. They didn't just survive by accident. They survived by being able to prove 110% to Stalin that they were loyal. And you could only do that by making great you know, personal sacrifices, such as, for instance, betraying your friends, your colleagues, saying, really, you know, they're, they're actually a fascist. And I've always known that the ideology wasn't quite sound. You betrayed them. And by that, you proved to, to Stalin, to the regime, you know, that you're 100% loyal. Um, but at the same time, when they get sent back and Stalin isn't entirely keen on East Germany, first of all, to be set up and secondly, to be set up as a 
kind of pure communist or socialist at the very least state, you end up in a situation because those hardcore East German communists were sent back, they are trying to be more Stalinist or more communist than Stalin himself um, because of the nature of the type of people that they are, despite the fact that Stalin is telling them something else. So in a way, you know, it creates a really complex and somewhat absurd situation where those um, sort of German uh, communists are more Stalinist than Stalin and Stalin is telling them to tone it down a little bit because it isn't working what they're trying to do. Um, so I, I know that's not quite a straightforward answer to your to your question, but it is a really messy situation in these kind of early post-war years. It's interesting you actually touch on Stalin there and that he didn't favour a communist East Germany. Can you, can you go into that a little bit and expand why? Because again, for a, for a UK audience or an Anglophone audience, they would think, Post-1945, Stalin, expansionist USSR, wanted to grab as much of Europe as possible. This doesn't really tally with that. So, yeah, could you expand on it, please? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes partially out of a Cold War uh, sort of mindset where people interpreted things at the time for a particular political reasons. So what I mean by that is when Stalin offers reunification of Germany, so the two German states had already been set up, um, in 1949 and in 1952, Stalin sends a note, um, the so-called Stalin note, westwards and says to the Western Allies, why don't we reunify Germany? Make it make it a, a liberal bourgeois democracy if you need to, but make sure it isn't uh, militarized. And that was his only condition. He even So offered, not a member of NATO, basically. Yeah. And, and also have it genuinely de demilitarized because in the West, they were already beginning to start uh, remilitarizing West Germany, setting up the Bundeswehr, effectively the West German army. Um, and people at the time, because Adenauer, Konrad Adenauer, the first West German chancellor, turned that down, as did, did the West generally, basically. And, and they had to say to the German people, uh, that, or they had to explain to them why they couldn't have reunification. That was deeply unpopular, the splitting of, you know, your own country, basically, um, and why it was toned down by, or turned down by the West. And the narrative that came out of that was that Stalin didn't really mean it anyway. You know, this was a cynical ploy, basically, to, to shift the um, responsibility over to the West. Um, and out of that, I think, came a narrative that Stalin, you know, would have grabbed as much of, of Western Europe as possible. All he wanted is to demilitarize it so that he could then move in and take it anyway. And that's why the West had to turn it down. Um, do, so, do, do you think that's true? No, I mean, that's why I set up this alternative. Um, and it's not just me. There are other historians who think, think the same thing, alternative way of thinking about it. Because when you do think about it, what Stalin wanted out of Germany was reparations on the one hand side. And you see that in the mass kind of looting both on personal and state level of, of East German industry and, and labor and so on, to the point where people get abducted and taken to the Soviet Union scientists in particular. Um, but also you see it in the way that Stalin, as I say, tells Walter Ulbricht to not go ahead, for instance, with the collectivization of agriculture. So Walter Ulbricht, just quickly, is one of these it, yeah. remaining Politburo members. Indeed, one of the two who becomes a, 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 the general secretary of the ruling party and therefore sort of runs the country for the first uh, two decades. And he presses ahead with a really quick build-up of socialism because, you know, he'd been dreaming about this as the other East German socialists have uh, for decades. And now here was the chance to have socialism on German soil. So he presses ahead with it. But Stalin tells him to tone it down because for one thing, take the agricultural sector, you end up with um, basically ideology taking prevalence over the economic realities. So you take, for instance, say a huge piece of land previously owned by by the Prussian aristocracy, the Junkers, you break it down into small little sort of, you know, a bit larger than a football field, kind of small little parcels. 
give it to people who've never been farmers before and see what happens. The agricultural sector collapses, it doesn't work. And, you know, that also then means that the reparations for Stalin to take out collapse and become smaller than they would have otherwise been. And for that reason, um, well, that was one of the reasons why Stalin basically would have much rather had a unified Germany that worked as it did before, you know, and was going to rebuild its its output, its, its massive industrial output in particular, the way that it was before, because he could have taken that and rebuilt his own country with it. I mean, reading the book, and this isn't a word I would often use with Stalin, he, he he comes, or his motives, or his reasoning comes across as quite reasonable. So, for instance, the thing about, um, and I'm not a fan of Stalin, but for instance, the, and I, I didn't know this, and so perhaps you can make some clarifications. He, he outwardly said, although of course he may not have meant it, that an East German state would only happen if there was a former, that if, if there was a West German state created. And, and specifically in 1949, we have martial aid being cited as the reason the DDR is created, as it violated previous agreements between all of the allies. So you have the French, the British, the Americans, and of course the Russians in Germany after the Second World War. And Stalin is, is quite clear, and the creators of the DDR are quite clear, that martial aid is a violation of agreements with regards to that occupation. Is that true? Was martial aid a violation of post-war agreements? Because I'd never heard that before. Well, in the sense that when, so when the Allies occupied Germany, the idea was that they would run Germany together as one unit. Yeah. So there was a thing called the Allied Control Council, the ACC, which had all four of the occupying powers in it, representatives in it, and they were supposed to make decisions for the whole of Germany. And the only reason why it split into those four zones was because obviously Germany was completely without any governmental structures at that point. Um, so it basically had no valid government, no local administrators, no police, nothing. So the Allies had to do absolutely everything on behalf of Germans, whilst they had themselves exhausted, particularly the, the Russians and actually the British and the French as well. They had completely exhausted themselves in this war. Um, so giving each a zone to sort of administer was made sense from a pragmatic point of view, but they were really supposed to implement the policies that the ACC, the Central Council, had decided upon. And both sides stopped doing that. So, for example, in the Eastern Zone, they start uh, with this collectivization of agriculture, nationalizing industries without saying to the other occupying powers that they're doing that. And this is before martial aid? Or? Uh, well, this all sort of happens. You know, one thing happens, the next thing right. happens. And, and you get kind of, you get martial aid on the other side because martial aid only makes sense if you actually have a currency that works. They start introducing the, the Deutsche Mark in the Western zones. Stalin says, you didn't tell me this, you know, so he blocks Berlin off, the Berlin blockade happens. The West says, you can't just block Berlin off, that's a, the city that needs to be kind of administered by all four at the same time. And they see that as a breach of that. So, you know, it's really a, a kind of tit-for-tat situation where you end up with both sides breaking these these arrangements all the time because they are completely ideologically, economically and politically opposed to each other. And running Germany together was perhaps always a slightly ambitious, you know, sort of idea that that was never going to to really be, you know, a practical thing that can actually be implemented. But it's so interesting because it is a real historical corrective to the sort of default pop history around this stuff, which is that the nasty Russians, nasty Stalin, nasty East Germans, you know, weren't willing to play ball. And, the, you know, the West was, you know, but... The, the account you detail in the book of confusion and, of course, four, four great powers trying to administer a, a single country is going to be a mess and there's going to be a great deal of disagreement I thought was very, very persuasive. The thing about reparations as well, I mean, this is super interesting. Um, and in a way, it's a credit, I think, to the, the Germans who lived in the East German state to recover from it the way that they did. 
Uh, obviously, many factors uh, would explain East Germany's failure, energy scarcity and so on. But early on, those reparations paid to the USSR are really, really extraordinary. And nevertheless, and we'll talk about those reparations in some detail, but this is a really remarkable statistic. By 1950, East German production levels were back to those of 1938, while the DDR, the East German Republic, had paid reparations three times greater than West Germany. So you have a recovery, economically speaking, to pre-war levels while paying reparations far beyond, I think, anything that we, we would imagine or, or, or think of as even, even reasonable, frankly. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big sort of, you know, gold star for the East German state in its infancy, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also a problem in the sense that people work very, very hard, very long hours, and they still don't see any of the kind of fruits of their labor appear. So you have the, the situation where, especially, you know, because the economy is nationalized and work quota, as in the amount of, of uh, hours that people work, is set by, you know, centrally set. And effectively, that's raised and raised and raised throughout the early 1950s to try and meet the reparations that are demanded by the by the Soviets. And the reparations themselves are another example where there was a kind of communal decision to start with, kind of not to repeat the mistakes that were made in 1918 uh, and, and 19 in the Treaty of Versailles, where the whole blame was put on Germany for the war. And a sum was later set in 1921. Um, and that sum had to be kind of met by Germany. So plunge the country into debt and the rest is history, as they say. Um, and they were trying to avoid that this time. So the, the logic was that every occupying power can take reparations from their own zone. And this could be either in money or it could be in goods or it could be in agricultural produce. But really, you can only take out of it what it actually physically exists. And thereby, you don't throw the economy into kind of a permanent debt. Um, and the Western occupying powers decide very early on that actually it makes financially and politically more sense to allow West Germany to recover um, and therefore stop taking reparations out. A classic example is, is the British um, occupying powers discovering the, the Volkswagen factory and sort of falling in love with the output, despite the fact that that was a, a product of, you know, sort of Hitler's thinking, having literally a people's car, and then deciding not to dismantle the factory and take it to Britain in the way that, say, the Soviets would have done, but leaving it there, putting it back into German hands and saying, here you go, you've got something where you can rebuild. Um, and based on that, you know, you have the, you basically have the car industry, which is still at the heart of German industrial output today. Uh, left in place rather than dismantled and taken away. And so, so we wouldn't have Volkswagen if British foreign foreign policy makers in the nineteen forties and fifties had behaved differently. I dread to think what would have happened to it with, like, you know, British Leyland and all that going terribly wrong in the seventies and eighties. So, you know, if they had taken it and maybe made it part of the British manufacturing, like car manufacturing process, then. But that's a that's a great alternate sort of reality, isn't it? There is no German car industry if you know a few British civil servants say, yeah, you know what, bring Volkswagen and all their factories well, over I'm here. I'm sure they would have still made cars, but you certainly wouldn't have had the, you know, Volkswagen as a as a brand still made by by Germany in Germany. It's back. one of the world's biggest car manufacturers. Indeed, and you know, people tend to forget where it actually comes from, you know, the, this kind of hence the hence the name of the people's car that was very much a sort of Hitler's project. Um, but then in the East, you got the complete opposite with the Soviets saying, well, look, we just fought this existential war. You know, the war that Germany fought in the East was a very different one from the West in that, you know, this wasn't a war of conquest only. This was a war of complete annihilation. Um, and Hitler, you know, had basically told people he wants the people of Eastern Europe eventually completely gone. Uh, one way or another, there wasn't a fixed plan for that. But basically, the way that the war was fought there was accordingly, you know, incredibly 
not just murderous, but actually genocidal. And as a result of that, Stalin comes back and says, you know what, you know, I need to build my country up again um, and takes everything he can out of it with with, you know, not really very much kind of a thought of what could happen later in terms of rebuilding Germany. Um, and so you end up with the industrial base being depleted, um, you know, on a, on a personal level, the literally bicycles torn out of, um, you know, German hands and all the rest of it. Uh, and there isn't really a chance for the East German economy to get back on its, on its feet, because even what is produced still in East Germany, because the expertise is there and therefore they, they leave the factories still kind of at the end of the assembly line literally gets taken by uh, by the Soviets and, and shipped off to um, to the Soviet Union. So that partially explained the frustration explains the frustration that you get in 1953 with with the first sort of mass uprising is that people are working, 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 trying to get their own country back on their feet um, on its feet and it doesn't doesn't produce any tangible outcome. So this isn't this isn't we're not yet at the point where people are blaming the economic system of the DDR or socialism. It's primarily about reparations. To start with, I mean, you do see people, you know, turning into or turning these kind of um, uh, the the anger of the people into political messages as well. So you do see demands for free elections and things like that. But the initial thing that triggers it is is a very real kind of sense of economic deprivation. There's virtually nothing, as I say, on the shelves after you know, work day where you've possibly worked for 14, 15, 16 hours and, and you've got nothing to show for it. Um, and then the regime at the top is very intransigent, doesn't listen. You know, I've got this scene in the book where you've got the workers on the Stalin Allee in Berlin of all places, um, sort of walking up to the to the government building and demanding that Walter Ulbricht, the head of the government, comes out and speaks to them. And he just looks out of the window and says, oh, it's going to rain. I'm sure they're, they're just going to go home. You know, and you just think, <laughs> how how detached have you got to be from this from the realities on the ground for the workers who you say you're working for and who you're building the state for to not to to think that people are just going to go home because it rains outside. They've got, you know, problems on an altogether different scale at that point. Yeah. I mean, again, going back quickly to something you, you sort of touched upon there with, with regards to Russia and how it, it was a different kind of war on the Eastern Front. Again, one of these sort of amazing, almost ethical ambiguities you get to with this book, really to the heart of it, is obviously USSR, Russian soldiers going into Eastern Germany, raping, pillaging, looting. Obviously, it's completely barbaric. But then you tell this extraordinary story of a, of a, of a Russian soldier who goes into a room where there's a child. Can you sort of go over that a bit? Really, yeah. really moving story. It was very moving. I mean, when the when the lady in question who told me the story told it to me, it, it wouldn't go out of my head for days on end. It was really quite something to hear that directly from from the lady who at the time was a very small child. So basically, this this was a a situation in in Eastern Europe where. Uh, most of the the men German women were still either fighting or were dead or were sitting in in prison of war camps. So it was only women and children left largely, and they had now heard, I think this is late 1944, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, that the Red Army is on the advance, and they weren't entirely sure what what to do. Um, and so they put all of the children into one room, um, the women, and were sort of guarding this this nursery, as they called it, with their own lives. Um, and then as the Soviets came in, you know, they, they stood no chance, effectively. They were armed, the women weren't. Um, and this young Soviet soldier barges his way past the women into the room and shuts the door behind them. And the women were stood outside with their children in, in this room and they couldn't hear anything. And they just held their breath and thought they'd heard stories about... 
you know, the Russians slitting children's throats and, and murdering and, and raping and looting their way into, into Germany. So they were all very, you know, concerned what would happen to their children. And then after a while, they couldn't stand it anymore. And so one of them went into the room and what they found was that this, this young Soviet soldier um, was on his knees crying with a little, one of the little babies in his arm. Um, and when they asked him or they tried, you know, they, obviously they didn't speak Russian. Uh, but when they tried to ask him what what was wrong, he sort of gesticulated that and effectively made himself understood that um, his little sister, who was the same age, had been murdered and by by the German army when they went the other way. Um, you know, and, and there's those kind of human stories where he'd just been reminded by this young child in his in his arms that you know basically his sister would have been the same age at the time and was murdered, and he couldn't therefore bring himself to do the same thing to to this German child. It brings the home, I think, the whole like human tragedy and also the complexity. Another man might have barged in with the same history and and would have maybe vented his ang anger on these um, children, which also happened. Um, so you get you know all of these really. Um, horrific stories of the immediate, um, not just the aftermath of the Second World War, but also the, the latter stages of it. I think actually, obviously, it's a very important document, this book. We'll talk about the, the East German Republic. That's what it's about. But those opening chapters about the ambiguity and the complexity of, 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 of the mid-20th century, which, frankly, I think we, we treat appallingly in this country. You know, it's about goodies and baddies. And of course, there were bad guys and they lost. It was the Third Reich. But at the everyday level of, of people like that, um, I think the general categorizations that we have are often quite limited and really, really, really stunning anecdote, one amongst many. Was there a point when the, the DDR looked like it might succeed? Was there a moment where people thought, actually, you know what? Things are on the up. Life's getting better. The future will be better than yesterday. Obviously, Germany's had a very tough couple of decades going all the way back to the start of the First World War. I think it... Uh, yes, there was a moment where people felt, you know, things were moving onwards and things were stabilizing and things were getting better for them. And that's largely when I spoke to people, I'd say from the mid 60s onwards into the mid 70s, that seems to have been sort of the period where people felt most, not just stable, but actually progress was being made on a social level, on an economic level uh, and things, you know, there, there had been uh, many, many years and decades of um a really tumultuous period in German history and you think you know if you're a middle-aged person at that point you would have gone through the first world war um, then the instability of the Weimar Republic the Nazism the second world war then this early phase where things go terribly wrong and, and the economy doesn't get back on its feet and then finally you end up with this period of relative prosperity uh, the GDR becomes the the country with the highest living standards in the in the communist bloc uh, people aren't starving they're not you know they, they've got a roof over their heads at that point this this kind of house building project works people have got flats that are clean and, and safe and warm um so by and large people feel settled and the other thing is that in this period you've got uh, in the space race for example the first you know man in space is, is is sent into space by the soviet union the first german in space is an east german Sigmund Jin. you know there's a kind of sense that even within the cold war setting the Eastern Bloc kind of stands a chance not only to keep up, but to be kind of ahead in certain... In certain. And what, what year was the first East German in space? Oh, God. <laughs> Catch me are out they the first? Are they the first sort of European, non-Russian European in space? or? Um, I'm not actually entirely sure, to be honest, because like, you know... I'm so sorry to the, ask no, that. No, sorry, it seems quite plausible, though, because obviously <clears throat> Britain doesn't have an... We have a satellite program, but 
Ah, it's one to think about. I, I had no idea the first uh, German in space was East German. And at the heart of that was, was a, a meritocracy, so to speak. So the DDR does seem in many ways more meritocratic than uh, West Germany. There was a statistic here. By 1967, one third of university students in East Germany were from working class backgrounds. In West Germany, that figure was 3%. So there must have been a widespread sense that not only were things getting better, there was a departure from obviously an incredibly difficult half century, but that actually in many ways the DDR was a, a better place to live for some people. Socially, you could certainly argue that for the working classes, I think this was possibly the the state, you know, which they'd gone through the incarnation of the of kind of what Germany is, which I think worked best for, for them as a working class uh, segment of society. Because you could, I mean, when you look at the Weimar Republic, that's maybe the next closest thing because they were led by um, social democrats who'd also argued that, you know, social mobility is the thing that they're trying to do. But they never really managed. You still have an incredibly small percentage, I think a 7% of working class kids in selective um, schools and grammar schools, which um, are the only way into university education. Um, so if you're working class for the first time and you're German, then that is the you know an opportunity for you to go to university to study, um, also to gain positions within the military. You know, particularly within the officer class. Um, that's the first time that that is actually possible. At the same time, you still have to have like the right background, effectively. So if, for instance, you have relatives in the West, which is something that you have no control over, you are actually barred from certain positions because the state always assumes that there's a risk, especially before the Berlin Wall is built, uh, where you can still sort of go westwards through the open sectors in Berlin, um, that you might do that and end up basically, you know, either being being turned as a spy or, or actually going and, and leaving the country after having gone through a, a, an expensive kind of education process. So it still depends on your willingness to play ball within the system. Um, but at the same time, there are many people, and I've spoken to many people who felt the sense of, um, you know, social progress in terms of what they were now able to do and hadn't been able to do previously. And for women, was it for a working class East German woman, was the DDR a better place to live if they wanted to work, for instance, if they wanted to attend university? Was it a better place than West Germany, say, in the early 1960s? I think so. I mean, so whether it's better or not, I think when you ask people at the time, because there was still society was still incredibly uh, conservative. So in a way, the regime was ahead of the people in that respect, in that it was encouraging girls and, and sort of young women to go into professions that they wouldn't have chosen for themselves. So there were a lot of people who said to me, you know, the teacher would take them to the side and, and arrange a meeting with their parents. And I've got some episodes like that in the book as well, where they would then say, well, look, your daughter is really clever. Um, she should probably go and, and study or go on to, to higher education. And it was quite often the parents or even the, the, the girl themselves who would sort of say, what, me, really? You know, because they wouldn't have naturally chosen that particular profession. But it's, it's kind of a state-driven um, uh, sort of way towards kind of female emancipation, if you will. And this is what makes it really difficult to talk about that. Because you get quite often, especially from West German feminists, this argument that it isn't real feminism because it wasn't the women themselves who, who pushed that. Um, but at the same time, because it becomes more normalized, you know, as this first generation of, of women and girls goes through this, 
the next generation thinks it's it's more normal and becomes kind of naturally adapted to the system. And, and as a result of that, you have in the 1980s a society where it's the highest rate of female employment in the world, over 90% of women are in full-time employment. That's never again been reached by any other state and it hasn't, it wasn't at the time something that other states got even close to. So over time, basically, yes, it was pushed from the top, but people got um, uh, kind of acquainted with that way of living and, and women became more confident outside of the domestic sphere than they would have otherwise been because they were just put in those positions and then it worked. Um, and so their way of interacting with society, also with the men around them in the workplaces became much more normalized. I, I got a lot of stories when I talked to people about, you know, women just going after work for a pint with their, with their male colleagues, you know, having that sort of band of the camaraderie that was very, very unusual for other uh, societies at the time to have that sort of eye to eye um, work relationship with men. This is interesting because uh, by the mid 1980s, you have a situation where, where more women in East Germany go to university than men, which is, I mean, it's very, very unusual. And I think, I think at the time that's unprecedented. I mean, the UK, we have it today. We've had it, I think, for you know maybe a couple of decades, but we're talking about 40 years ago at this point. Angela Merkel is, is probably one of the most famous East Germans. Obviously, she then ascends to the highest democratic office in the country. Um, she's she's one of the most successful politicians in 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 Europe in the post-war era in terms of longevity. Is Angela Merkel and her success a reflection of the kinds of um, gender equality, pro-feminist policies that we see in the country of her birth, i.e. East Germany? I think to an extent, I mean, she's herself been incredibly reluctant to to talk about this and has often been criticised by, by feminists in Germany for not making a bigger argument there that she's a woman in politics. She's always tried to downplay that and never really talked about it explicitly. But I think just the way that she was able to adapt in a world that was almost entirely male at that point in time, you know, when the wall fell and then she sort of joined the political sphere, she was a scientist beforehand, a, a research uh, scientist, um, joins this world basically as a complete outsider. She's a woman, she's from the East, uh, she's a scientist, whilst most German politicians come from like a sort of law background. Um, and she's able to not only navigate that field, but, you know, bring with her a cert certain kind of confidence, a way of asserting herself in that field uh, that I think is very unusual. So there was no, at no point, a kind of uh, sense that she was intimidated by that or felt like, you know, she doesn't belong there um, because she could see eye to eye basically with, with the very sort of stuffy male dominated world in, in Bonn, where the West German capital was. And also there were women in the, in the East German army when there's unification in the early 1990s, but women aren't allowed into the West German army, into the Bundeswehr. So, so what happens there? Well, they all got sacked <laughs> for that reason. So the constitution that West Germany had was after the war came down and, and Germany was reunified in 1990, was also, so East Germany was basically absorbed into that and, and took on the same constitution, um, which banned literally as part of the constitution women from any kind of active role in the in the Bundeswehr and the army. Um, so they were only allowed into the medical and the musical course, and that was it. So if you were in a combat role or you were a female officer in, in East Germany, and, and there were about 2,000 women in the in the East German army. 2,000? Uh, by that point, but they introduced it in the sort of, especially officer corps were only introduced in the 80s. Um, so it was still on the, on the build-up and would have probably been more in the long run. 
Um, but still a lot but, yeah, of people to no, lay off. Still, yeah, indeed. And they were just completely, um, like literally from one minute to the next, basically uh, sacked because there were no roles for them in the in the Bundeswehr. Um, and that is something again that isn't very often talked about um, because the East, uh, sorry, the the sort of Bundeswehr only opened itself up. I think is in the early two thousands when they were forced to by a court case, which where somebody kind of challenged that and said it's a case of discrimination, uh, not to allow women into the army, and they they um, won that court case, and that's why you had, you now have basically women in the Bundeswehr. Um, but at the time, that there was just no way for them um, to to go into that field, and the vast majority sort of either um, found other uh, sort of jobs to to go into, or some joined in a civilian role, basically doing admin work and things like that. Again, very surprising, isn't it? Again, you do, liberal democratic Germany, you would, and that was the whole illiberal East Germany, liberal democratic West Germany. There's unification, and then you're laying off loads of women because of their gender. It seems. Very counterintuitive. It, you said that uh, a moment ago that uh, West German feminists didn't really view these extraordinary changes in East Germany as, you know, um, a triumph of feminism. So there was very little acknowledgement of what was going on in East Germany, for instance, with the childcare system. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But West German feminists weren't really that interested in it? I think they still aren't really. I mean, there's still a debate now where this is seen as a very cynical move by the regime um, because they needed workers after the Second World War rebuilding and all that. There was always a shortage of workers within the within the GDR. And so many Lots people... Lots of economies have worker shortages. They don't do that. Indeed. <laughs> uh, well, and they also didn't need to make sure that women had access to sort of further education. They could have just kept them in the factories as happened, you know, during the during the wars in lots of Western societies. Um, but I also have a, an interesting document in the book where um, basically you have a party communique published in the party newspaper, Neues Deutschland. Uh, which really, if you change the heading, you know, it could be published today where there's just a complaint from the politicians at the top about the way that women are still treated in the workplace. And we're talking in the 1960s now. Wow. And, and the language that is used is just, it just amazed me when I found it in the, in the archives. You know, it's kind of along the lines of um, uh, women still have to prove that, you know, they have a head for politics and, and economics and, and science when they shouldn't need to because they got the same education. And there's still, you know, the whole tone of it is really angry. There's still an argument in inverted commas, as it's put in the article, that, that women, you know, can't cope with these sort of hard-headed topics and, and they don't belong in the workplace. And then, you know, the article goes on to complain that men don't understand that women not only have to sort of prove themselves more in the workplace, but they also have still like their children and the household to run at home. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting that that is an, an ideo ideological argument that is made um, in that article from from the government, from the party, to say to men specifically, we need to do something about this. It can't continue like that. And then it ends in something like, and people who think this way are not just holding back women, they're holding back our entire society, you know, and you, you realize actually this isn't something that is just done as a, as a kind of, you know, economic measure. This is something that the regime is taking very seriously as part of its ideology. So fascinating. That's so fascinating. We've talked about good parts of the DDR. There are, there are many. Obviously, the meritocratic elements were working class people, or s somewhat meritocratic. Gender emancipation, gender equality. Obviously, the giant cloud is the Berlin Wall. Um, this doesn't emerge until the 1950s. Why is the... Um, this doesn't emerge until the 1950s. Why was the Berlin Wall built? Um, effectively, because there was a brain drain from the east into the west. So people who were... 
um, I mean, it really goes back to, to the fact that you've got a socialist system and a capitalist system in the same country and they're competing. And in the early years before the Berlin Wall is built, you can still choose to live in either because all you've got to do is you go to Berlin, you walk over into the other sector, and then you can travel into the West. So if you're in the East trying to create a classless society where largely everyone enjoys the, the same living standards, so you're saying basically you abolish absolute poverty, but in exchange, you also abolish absolute kind of luxury and, and wealth at the top end, and you end up with everybody sort of meeting in the middle. That's really good if you're working class and you're being pulled out of the, the lower end into the middle. It's not so attractive if you're middle class upwards and you're at the upper end and you're also supposed to be pulled into the middle. So you, for instance, ended up in a situation, say, in a school where um, the cleaner and the teacher and the head teacher would all kind of roughly have the same social status and earn the same money. Um, so the head teacher might decide, actually, I can be somebody higher up in society, earn more money um, and, you know, sort of uh, gain more social prestige if I live in a society where there is a class system where I will be once again kind of middle or upper class. And they find a mirror society where that is possible in the West and they find it possible and legal and safe to go there. And that's effectively what happened. Lots of skilled workers as well, who just learned, you know, through this kind of quite good education system that was put in place and one that supported workers um, to do that, who just learned a, a skill that was required to rebuild. They also earned a lot more money in the West because they were needed and, and the kind of free market system meant that people were earning the sorts of money, you know, that reflected how much they were sought after. And so they also left. Um, and so many villages, for instance, ended up without GPs. Um, so many people that I spoke to said, like, literally everybody had left and there wasn't a doctor left anywhere near in our region. Um, and for that reason, eventually, you know, you literally have hundreds of thousands of people that go. And I found it also quite interesting when you look at the statistics that people ended up in in sort of camps in, in West Germany to start with, because there were so many of them um, that they had to be processed to start with. And in these camps, there were sort of surveys taken uh, by, by the West German government. They wanted to know why people were there. Um, and the vast, vast majority, sort of three quarters or so of people said that they had left for economic reasons. You know, and that tells you what the problem basically is with this. So the East German government eventually decides, mainly for that reason, that the last gap, basically, that still existed in Berlin um, needed to be shut. And that's what they did. And it's interesting as well how little resistance you get from Kennedy in America, from Adenauer um, as well, in terms of, you know, that that final gap basically being shut because they're also worried about an open border for from a Cold War perspective, um, because it basically allowed everybody freely to go from A to B. So everyone's quietly more or less accepts the fact that the wall is built and East German middle class people kind of just sit there and think for the most part it is what it is and we need to live with it um, and they sort of arrange themselves within the system and these spectacular stories that we're used to you know in terms of hot air balloon escapes and tunnelers and all the rest of it that's a small group of people who um you know are so desperate for either personal reasons or because they have family in the west um, who try and escape, but the vast majority of people are now thinking if I'm going to have to risk my life, you know, I could literally get shot trying to cross. They don't and they stay. And that's why you get this kind of relative period of stability in the 60s. Yeah, it strikes me as actually quite analogous to how we view um, development. So you have core periphery relations and you have a, a wealthy capitalist core that wants cheap, talented labor from the periphery and 
going from east to west Germany, I think is a good, for me anyway, I mean, that might might not be accurate, but it was an interesting prism for me to see how labor operates also in a, in a, in a global political economy today. Um, this seems to be one of the more interesting um, and esoteric aspects of East German history. Can you explain the East German coffee crisis of 1977? <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite bits in the book because I think it tells you a lot about the economy, but also the way that the state uh, ran psychologically. Um, so effectively, there was a worldwide coffee shortage for all sorts of reasons um, and coffee prices were going up massively you also at that point you also get intro the introduction of kind of mixed coffees in the west at the cheaper end of the market so mix them with barley and all sorts of not so nice things um, and the GDR realized that actually it can't afford to buy coffee on the world market anymore and of course coffee doesn't grow in East Germany it also doesn't grow particularly well in the Soviet Union so you know they had to get this from somewhere and because the the world market was expensive and you needed hard currency to buy it, they decide maybe we can grow some coffee in a country that's affiliated with us and then maybe we can trade with them rather than using currency. And they find uh, a, a kind of willing partner in Vietnam um, because A, it has got the climate for that and B, you know, we're talking the mid-70s that had only just come out of the Vietnam War and, and needed rebuilding itself. And so the GDR sort of offered um, a deal whereby they'd basically build up these coffee plantations in uh, Vietnam alongside also like the irrigation systems, the infrastructure, schools, like whole villages basically resettling people mainly from the coastal areas where they lived in Vietnam into the sort of highlands where the coffee can be grown. Um, and they did that. The problem is that coffee plants take a long time to, to sort of grow and produce their first yield. And the first yield came in in 1990 mm. when <laughs> the GDR had literally just collapsed. Uh, but it's arguably one of the most successful development projects, you know, ever undertaken because now Vietnam is the second largest coffee producer in the world. Um, so this could have actually worked out as a kind of means of creating revenue. Germany would have imported the coffee beans kind of roasted them and then sold off the, the ground coffee into the rest of the world, creating not only coffee for itself, but also for the rest of the world. As, as for instance, Unified Germany does, it's one of the largest coffee exporters in the world, despite not actually growing any. I mean, this was a different model of development, wasn't it? We look at you know how development works now in the 21st century, but East Germany provided, here I've got the, the, the data, necessary equipment machinery uh, to increase coffee plantations from 600 to 8,600 hectares. Uh, $20 million was spent on a hydropower plant as well. Like you say, now today Vietnam is the world's second largest coffee producer. I think a couple of million people are employed in that sector. You said one of the, I think it must be the most successful development project ever. And, you know, we think about development and within sort of development discourse, there's the lens, I think quite rightly, of exploitation, but this seems like a very fair deal. Uh, between the two countries and it's yeah it's a, a lesser known point of history that I think it would be good to uh, know more about when did it become apparent that the East German political project might not succeed when when did that become a sort of a, a, something people could at least talk about over the family kitchen table I think mostly in the 80s there was certainly a sense there um, throughout the 80s that the country was stagnating, uh, new ideas were missing, the economy was also becoming acutely problematic for all sorts of reasons, um, which meant that, for instance, when, when the Polish economy collapsed and Poland declared itself bankrupt, Western lenders were saying, well, we're not lending any money anymore to countries in the Eastern Bloc. And it's often kind of one of those triumphalist moments in West German sort of history is, is that West Germany lent money um, 2 billion 
uh, Marx basically to East Germany and thereby bailed it out, and it did. But then you think about the way that countries operate today, you know, those sort of huge amounts of debt that countries like Britain or Germany accumulate because you borrow all the time when mm. you need money. And East Germany literally didn't have anywhere to go. The Soviet Union said, we, we can't, we won't lend you anything anymore. Western creditors, as I say, were spooked by the by the collapse of the Polish economy, so stop lending money to, to Eastern countries. And you end up with nowhere, basically, for, for the state to, to borrow any money from. Um, and so they go sort of almost cap in hand to the to the West German um, creditors as, as brokered by the minister president of Bavaria of all of all people, um, Strauss, who's himself really quite a staunch cold warrior. Um, but that, for instance, is a problem that they can't hide from the population, that the fact that the economy is basically crumbling alongside the Soviet economy. Um, and that's one of the key issues. And the other side is that there's no renewal at all at the top. You still have Eric Honecker in charge, who is himself sort of a creature of pre you know, World War Two years, sat in a Nazi prison, had learned in Soviet Russia how to be a communist, had been trained ideologically. Eric Mirka, the head of the Stasi, had fought in the Spanish Civil War, you know, and had been trained as a as a Czechist, as a kind of, you know, by the by the Soviet secret police in methods of, you know, sabotage and questioning and all of that stuff. And these people, you know, if you're 20, say, in the 1980s, and you're now, your country is still run by these sort of dinosaurs, you know, who'd learned literally under kind of fascism and, and Stalinism how to be what they are and taken all of those experiences. And, and they still not, they've still not gone and they're not listening to people who are coming through and they want change and they want to reform things. I think there was also a real sense of frustration there from the people that nothing was changing, nothing was moving forward. And that's a marked change really from the late 60s and early 70s. Milk was 82 at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, he's in his 80s Stasi. at that point, yeah. It's very unlike, say, the Chinese Communist Party, where you have you do have renewal. I mean, people might not like it. It's not, you know, especially democratic, but you do have renewal within the organization. You don't get within the East German SED. Final question. In what ways has German unification been bad for East Germany and East Germans? I think the biggest problem of it was that the triumphalism that came from the West by having won the Cold War was applied to everything in the East. So, you know, you apply that to the economy, you say your market economy was never going to work. You apply that to people's own biography, you know, the job that you'd learned to do. Clearly that wasn't right because it was part of a system that has that now been proved to fail. And therefore everything that you did previously in your life is wrong, was doomed to fail. And it applies to every aspect of people's lives on and the state as a whole. And I think that made people quite um, frustrated in the 1990s in particular. There's huge unemployment. Uh, you've got basically at one point in the early 2000s, you got a fifth of, of East Germans being unemployed. That's a huge figure, over 20%. Um, it's now better in that sense, but that's because of zero-hour contracts and, and kind of other precarious and work leaving. arrangements. And people leaving. Um, so, you know, there's all of that um, sort of frustration. Then some people were asked to dismantle their own factories. You know, you're literally packing up your workplace and, and you see it being sold off in a sort of grubby bargain basement way, you know, to, to Western investors who bought it off for the, often for the symbolic value of one mark. And that's kind of your life's work. You know, you've worked in the same factory for 30, 40 years or whatever, and now you're having to to literally kind of let it go and, and be told at the same time that this was all ridiculous in any case. There was re a real sense of kind of sneering and looking down upon the, the work that people had been doing for, for decades. And I think that is the biggest issue with this, is that there wasn't a sense that what people had been doing was, was worthwhile. And I think it's only now 
that people are voicing that frustration and, and are daring to do that. And I give an example at the beginning of the book of even Angela Merkel, who you could argue is the success story to come out of East Germany, said in her last speech in office in, in 2021 that she felt still looked down upon as an East German. Her, her background, the first 35 years of her life, were still written off as, as ballast, as one uh, commentator put it, to sort of praise her, actually. They were saying, despite the ballast of her early biography, she still managed to do well and, and, you know, look at how resilient she is. When she was actually saying, well, look, you know, we're talking about 35 years of my life. They're a bit more than ballast. That was my life. Good things happen, bad things happen, but the story is a bit more complex than that. And, and she doesn't want, you know, the first half of her life being thrown away like that. And the same applies to lots of other East Germans, I think. Is there a political overhead to all of this? Obviously, you've seen the rise of the AFD, often overstated, it should be said, in, in, in foreign media. But is there going to be a sort of political expression of, if there is a, a revisiting of the DDR and some of the good things it did, for instance, around childcare, much better than what we see across Europe today, do you think there'll be a political overhead to any of that? Or are we still a way away from a wholesale reassessment of the German Republic? I think we are still a long way off that. I mean, even now, I mean, my book hasn't appeared in Germany yet, and I've already had tons of criticism from German people who haven't even read a page of it because it literally hasn't been published yet. You know, just about the very idea of complicating the picture makes people nervous. So I think we are still a very long way off that. Um, but I think that this kind of political anger and apathy that you see to some extent is also a, a, an economic thing because you see the same kind of left behind feeling, you know, that's so often talked about, I think, in, in communities in Britain, in the US and France. Nobody would say to, I don't know, the, the Julie Jean say that, that they do what they do because they were once part of a communist system. I think the same it's an easy explanation in Germany to say, oh, look at these Easterners, they were socialized in a dictatorship, so therefore they are what they are. I think a lot of it is just the sheer deprivation that happened in the, I mean, I grew up in the 90s shortly after the, the wall came down and it was not a nice place. Like stuff just, you know, got shut down. Um, new buildings were quickly raised, you know, with state money effectively as subsidies, even though there was no way that that shopping center and that place was ever going to work. So they then stand there empty as kind of a sign of, you know, decay, really. You have people taking drugs en masse, uh, you know, everywhere across the East, like young people, because there was virtually no perspective of doing anything. I don't know a single person I went to school with that still lives in the area where, where I'm from, because it's just that, you know. Um, poor and, and there's nothing to do, no jobs, nothing, um, that people just leave and that also deroots you to some extent. Um, so all of these frustrations, I think, play a role more so than the socialization the East did, I think, in the way that people are unhappy with mainstream politics. Katja, great book. It was great talking to you. And uh, thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.